You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Ah, good morning. I'll let you have a seat. And this is, in fact, one of Bishop Serona's shirts. So we'll see whether or not the, the anointing remains with it. If this is a poor sermon, we'll blame him. So yeah, we're in transition. We were here, my wife and I, with Zoe, our oldest. She's 17. And starting, she has started now, her semester at Syracuse University. She's going to be studying photojournalism. I didn't know this about Syracuse, but they have a great photojournalism school. And so she's there at Newhouse College. We saw her off. My wife is still with her now. She'll fly home today. Zoe starts class on Monday. So when you think of her, when you think of us, be praying for her. It is absolutely a season of transition. In fact, I was thinking about this when Bill brought up the question about transition. I think two things I want to say about it. One is there's really a difference between transition and being transitioned. And I think the last seven years of my life has not so much been about transition as it has been being transitioned. Like, here's the difference, right? Transition is you take the train from one city to the next. Being transitioned is you're hit by a train. Right? I feel like the last seven years of my life, and I will spare you the details, but essentially it's been one long experiment in finding out how many different ways the cure can be worse than the disease, right? How can we go out of the fire, into the firing pan, or out of the frying pan, into the fire, and then back into the somehow hotter frying pan, and then back into the fire, which is increasing in heat? It's just been, it's, it's like the fundamental difference between like riding a horse along the beach at sunset and falling off the horse, but your foot catching in the stirrups and being dragged along through... <laughs> barbed wire for seven years like that it's that fundamental difference between transition and being transitioned that I want to that I want to start with because it like transitioning it sounds easy right like that's yeah that's doable but being transitioned is not always so enjoyable and that has been again our story for for years I really just in fact I, I can't show you now but I have a tattoo here It's an image of Jesus rising from the tomb, which is rare in Christian art. Usually he's shown having already risen. It's very rare for a Christian art or iconography to show Jesus in the process of rising. But I got this in 2015, thinking that that season of my life was over. And I I told my wife, like, I love this image. Again, this was seven years ago. This was me rising from that season of my life into a new day. (laughs) Little did I know. (laughs) No, no, no. Like, I was actually moonwalking back into the tomb. Like, that's not, there was no moving on. But the the fact of the matter is, well, let me say this about my health, and I'll come back to kind of where I think we are. So the last time I was here, which is about five months ago, I had just had a stroke, a series of strokes, and was doing pretty well. And the time from then to now, it got worse and then suddenly better. So about a month ago, the doctor, the neurologist identified the problem, which was actually really basic, which was a blood pressure problem that should have been identified years and years ago. 
So since they put me on that medicine, I haven't had another episode. I haven't had a headache of any kind. And it's miraculous, right? Except, yeah, yeah, praise God for it. I mean, almost immediately we had clarity about what had been happening with me, you know, why I had the strokes, why I was having the headaches, and they stopped once I started the medicine. But that meant I felt better. So I went back to the gym, and four or five days after I was set free from the neurological problem, I blew out my back playing basketball. Today is really the first day since that happened that I've been able to kind of move around with any kind of ease at all. I'm not in too much pain this morning. And I love that because this is one day after we moved my daughter into college. Like, I didn't have to bother with, like, carrying everything in for her because my back was destroyed. But the moment that was done, I was healed. I understand that that seems sketchy, but it's true. Like, I just, I feel so much better. I hope my daughter does not see this. Or my wife. So, I want to talk a little bit about transition. We're going to look at the gospel text and then Hebrews. But I I want you to think for just a moment about, I mean, I've been lighthearted about it. But the fact is, all of us are living under an incredible amount of stress, whether we realize it or not. We all process it differently. We all metabolize stress differently. But all of us are living under incredible stressors. We are. And... I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I'm neither a psychologist nor the son of a psychologist. But I've been to therapy often enough to know that when you think about things in isolation, like, does this bother you? Is this stressful for you? It's not necessarily that in itself that's overwhelming. But stressors layer. So the way that our therapist, my wife and I were in therapy together a few months ago, and the therapist had his whiteboard, and he just drew kind of a squiggly, looked like a wave across the board, and then one slightly above that, and then one slightly above another, and, then an, and so on. So he had seven or eight waves running across the board. And he said to us, listen, you are accumulating stresses, and you have a threshold what you can deal with. And any one of these things on its own, when you're facing it, seems manageable. But when you layer them and you add to the stresses, you then very easily can get to a threshold without realizing how the cumulative effect of all of those stressors is working on you. I think we live, societally, we have been living for years in a pressure cooker. Like all of us are living under unbelievable stress all the time, and it's so ever-present, we've almost come to think of it as normal. But here's how you can know. Think about how noisy your heart is. When you try to settle down and settle into the quiet of being present, either present with the Lord, present with your family, present with those who are grieving, if you will try that, you will find, almost surely, you'll find very quickly, your heart is rattled with noise. And it is because we are being inundated from every side, by voices offering opinions about everything that's happening. We are overwhelmed by it. I was talking with, with Father Bill on the way here yesterday. In the aftermath of the Holocaust, and many of you, if you're interested in this kind of history, you know this already. In the 
in the aftermath of the Holocaust, when the news was finally breaking, fully breaking, with video of what had happened in the concentration camps. They had video of these camps being liberated, photographs of what had happened to these people who had survived, as well as the mass graves and the ovens and the barbed wire. There was widespread disbelief from people that something this bad could not have been going on without them knowing it. And at first, the video didn't convince people that they were wrong. They just assumed that it was propaganda of some time, of some kind. So they're seeing video of these camps. They're seeing photographs. They're hearing firsthand reports, including survivor testimony. But it was so horrifying that their first instinct was to think that can't be true. Now, we live in a society in which that kind of video, you're watching almost all of your waking hours. Like, if you have a smartphone, or you have cable TV, or you connect to the internet at any point, or you know anybody who does, you're hearing that kind of report all the time. And almost certainly, you also have a few people in your life, probably on television, probably some personality, who interprets that for you, who has a comment about what that is and what it means. And then you have relationships with other people who have other people who interpret those events for them. And part of what, one of the reasons we're so stressed is that we are, we're flooded with information that we cannot process. And we not only are flooded with information that we cannot process, we're flooded with opinions about what's happening that we cannot process. And we're flooded by the emotional response to people we love and trust having different experiences and different interpretation of the same experiences. And therefore, we're um, as emotionally overwhelmed as we are intellectually overwhelmed. And that's just talking about what's happening in the world around us. That's not talking about your financial strains. That's not talking about your physical health. That's not talking about the state of your marriage or your family. That's not talking about any of the stuff that's universally true for all humans everywhere. We are overwhelmed. This is, as he said, Edgar Allan Poe before Christopher Robin. But I, I cannot exaggerate for you how serious I think our situation is. And I think the Lord wants to speak to that. But the, the hearing of the word of the Lord begins with recognizing how much noise there is. Right? So what we're going to do now is turn to these texts. Everybody still with me? Yes. We're going to turn to these texts, the gospel and then Hebrews. And I want to just kind of give our attention to these texts for a moment. And then at the very end, I'll come back and talk about how I think that matters for living under these stressors. Like, how do we live with all of these pressures around us? How do we navigate what is happening in our world and in our lives? But let's start with the gospel text, which Jacqueline just read for us. I I won't reread it, but I want you to notice that Jesus goes into the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is present to this Pharisee. We, we, the Pharisees have a bad rap. If you read the Gospel of Luke closely and, and the book of Acts as well, you'll see that the Pharisees are actually friends of Jesus. Not all Pharisees are Pharisaical as we think of it, not, not by any means. So Jesus is in the house of this leader of the Pharisees, 
And everyone is watching him closely. They're watching Jesus to see how he's going to interact. But Jesus is noticing what they're doing. Jesus is aware. And, and one of the signs that we're living well, that we're living centered lives, is that we're aware of what's happening around us. And awareness is directly opposed to judgmentalism. So if you're present to something, and what's coming up in you are judgments about people, that means you're not aware of what's happening. Judgmentalism is identical with the lack of awareness. Jesus is present and aware. He's he's noticing what is happening. And therefore, he's discerning the truth rather than levying judgments. So when you're present in any space, whether this is a family reunion, a church service, meal with a friend, if you're present in any space and what's flooding you are, I can't believe they think that. What is wrong with this person? Why do I feel the way that I do? What's wrong with me? Like those kinds of judgments, which can be levied against yourself or against the other person, those kinds of judgments are signs that you're not present and aware So Jesus notices what's actually happening. What he notices is that they are choosing the places of honor. He notices that they're they're scrambling for position. They're trying to find their place. And so he tells them a parable. Everybody say parable. Parable. And I'm going to read this part to you. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor. In case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host, and the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, one of the problems we have with reading Scripture well is that we've been weakly Christianized. We've been given a kind of Christianity that makes it harder for us to hear Jesus saying what he means. Because most of us have been, and this is true not just here in this community, but right across our world, people have been Christianized in ways that essentially are telling them how to have a better life. We hear Jesus offering advice about improving our lives. We don't hear Jesus speaking the word of God that divides asunder soul and spirit, that calls us into the presence of God, that demands of us that we be consumed by the consuming fire. We'll come to that in just a moment. So when you read this text badly or poorly, it just sounds like Jesus is giving kind of advice for etiquette. Like if you get invited to a banquet, you should just be savvy about where you sit. Because if you choose the lowest place, everybody will notice when the master comes and says, the master of the ceremony comes and says, hey, move up here to this more prestigious place. But you should know right away, Jesus is not really into offering advice about etiquette. For one, in his society, nobody looked to him for that. I mean, he's from Nazareth. Right? He's, he's not like an expert here, right? He, he's not, he doesn't have a show on TV about where to put your fork, which knife to use, how to fold your napkin. Like, that, that's not what Jesus is offering here. 
Right? Jesus is not into fine dining. I'm sure he enjoyed good food, but he's not, he's, not a, he's not concerned about etiquette. We know that because of the way he himself acts, the people that he eats with, right? but also because he refuses to play those roles in their lives. And when he's telling them this, you know what they're doing? Well, yeah. That's obvious, Jesus. Of course we're not going to. They know this already. So it sounds like Jesus is saying something, one, that's essentially meaningless about manners. And second, that's something that everybody in the room would have known already. So one of the things I want to encourage you to do, whenever you're reading the gospel and something seems obvious, stop yourself because you're certainly wrong. The moment you have a plain sense of what Scripture is saying, I promise you, 100% of the time, you're missing it. Because if it's plain to you, it's something you already know. And when God speaks to you, it's not something you already know. If God is speaking to you, it will surprise you. So if you come to Scripture... And you see something, you're like, yeah, I know that. You might not be wrong about what you're thinking, but you're wrong about what God is saying in that text. Your opinion might not be mistaken, but you're not hearing the Lord. Because if you were hearing the Lord, you wouldn't be thinking, yeah, I know that already. God does not repeat himself. Right? God doesn't drone on. Right? God doesn't just talk to be heard talking. God doesn't like the sound of his own voice. If God is speaking, and you're reading Scripture, God is speaking then you should be hearing something you've not heard before, something that requires you to be Christ-like. Here's another clue. If you're reading the text and it seems obvious to you and you know obviously what that means for me, you're also wrong. And if it seems obvious to you, you're mistaken, especially if you think it's obvious what I should do because of what you're seeing in the text. That's judgmentalism, and you're not aware when you're judging. You're flooded with judgment. You can't see what's there. So if, if it's the Lord speaking, it will surprise you, and it will require you to act lovingly, not to require me to act lovingly. Right? God doesn't speak in the Word so you can tell me how to live. So when you're reading Scripture, if you want to, hear, you want to know whether it's God or not, ask yourself those two things. Does this surprise me? And does it require me to bear my cross? Or am I using this to try to require somebody else to bear my cross for me? Right? This is fundamental to everything else I'm going to say today. So I want to make sure you're tracking me. You still with me? Right? So that, that was a little less robust. You're being transitioned right now. This is the train hitting you. So we should know right away that can't be what's happening. Jesus is not offering etiquette. And we get the clue in the text. Did anybody notice it? There's a clue in the text itself. That tells us that's not what he's doing. Jesus notices that they're seeking places of honor. And what does he do? He tells them a parable. He doesn't give them advice. He tells them a parable. And then, notice what happens next. So he just said to all of these guests, if, if someone is invited to a wedding banquet, don't sit down in the place of honor. Sit in the lowest place so that the host can come and say, friend, move up higher. Then he turns and says to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return. 
and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Underline that line. They cannot repay you. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. All right, now notice what's happened. He says to the guest what seems like just good etiquette, good manners. Like, don't, don't try to get a more prestigious place than is rightfully yours. Take a step back. Let people invite you up. Everybody knows that. Nobody's doubting that. Except Jesus ends that by saying, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And one way of mishearing Jesus is to think that he's giving you techniques to make your life richer, to make your life better, to make your life more fortunate. Like one of the things that afflicts us, and I'm grateful for much of this. I mean, I'm grateful for this very fine shirt that Bishop Mark gave me. But we have to keep a fundamental distinction between privilege, fortune, and blessing. One of the problems with being American is that we have so many privileges and so much good fortune that we start to think that means blessing. I've been on too many short-term mission trips out of this country and come back to hear people say what I took away, and you've heard it too, come back to say, what did we take away from our trip to Haiti or our trip to South America or our trip to Mexico? What do we take away? We are so blessed. No, you're not. You're privileged. You're not blessed. You're not more blessed than people there. God's blessing is not greater here than there. God doesn't love you more than them or me more than you. God is no less present amongst the poor than he is among those who are privileged. Right? And if you, you've got to hear this. Like, if you confuse privilege and good fortune for blessing, what you really mean is, I like the way my life is going, not I'm following Jesus no matter what. So, so much of the time when we say God is good, what we really mean is, my life is going the way I want it to right now. But God is good all the time is a prophetic declaration of faith. It's not a description of whether or not I like what's happening to me. When I say God is good all the time, I mean no matter what's happening, whether I'm transitioning or being transitioned, whether I'm on the train or the train is on me, God is good all the time. Whether I'm privileged or not, whether I'm fortunate or not, God is good all the time. And one of the things that frees us up from the anxiety that's overwhelming us is to recognize that privilege can come or go. The blessing of God remains. Fortune can be good or ill. The blessing of God remains. Sometimes we're victorious and sometimes we're humiliated. The blessing of God remains. Sometimes we are welcomed by our friends and sometimes we are rejected by those who should welcome us. But the blessing of God remains. And when we know that, we can settle. Right? When we know that, we can settle. But when we confuse what is happening to us for what is true in God, then we're just blown around by every experience we have. Desperate to have the, something that only God can give us, 
from things that have no power in themselves. Right? We're going to see that in Hebrews in just a moment. So Jesus tells this man, when you throw a party, like the one for Cousin Ron, don't invite your friends. Don't invite your friends, because if you invite other people of privilege, they'll invite you when they throw their party. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing wrong with this, what he's describing. If you throw a party, invite me, right? Sure, unless it's like a, a party for candles. You can, you can leave me off that list. But other than that, right, I, I want to come, and I want to be part of it. And when I throw a party, I'll invite you. Like, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not the way the kingdom works. Right? So let me show you this. Jesus says, when you throw a party, invite the people who can do nothing for you. And you will be blessed because they can do nothing for you. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So here's a, a fundamental difference I want to kind of work into you. The difference between cause and effect and resurrection life. Between creation and cause. So cause and effects work, work like this. You want this to happen, so you figure out a way to make it happen by doing something. I'm going to cause this. right? So if I want Bill to notice me, I've got to find some way of getting his attention. Right? So if, if he's the person in power, he's the one hosting the party, and I want to move up at the table because I want to be sitting with the big boys. I want to be a part of that big conversation that's going to shape my future. I've got to find some clever way of getting him to notice me. Right? Find my way up the ladder, right? So here's the thing. Now I need a technique. And I could edge my way in and try to force everybody to pay attention. I could be loud. I could be brash. I could demand attention. Or I could be subtle and coy and take the lowest seat and hope he notices that I took the lowest seat and then to call me up. But notice, all of that is about cause and effect. And we've read Jesus as if he's telling us how to do the causes that will bring about the effects that we want. Tithe and you'll be blessed. Worship crazily and I'll show up for you when you need me. Show up at church and I'll show up at work for you. But all of that is cause and effect. All of that is finding some technique to get out of God what we think we need from God. And a lot of us have been conditioned that that's the reason you have faith. Because God is the one who's going to do for you what nobody else can do. You have to be willing to do something for God to get in his favor so that when you're in those moments of need, when your child is sick, or when you are dying, or when you've lost your job, or when you've been rejected, God will break in and do for you what only God can do for you. But all of that is about social positioning. God is not useful. We're not called to this life because we've found a way to use God's resources to our benefits. But God is not going to give me my best life now. I'm not in relation to God because he has infinite resources that I can supply myself with. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. That's what an idol is. You know, Paul says this, that greed is idolatry. We're going to look at this in just a moment in Hebrews. The love of money is what disrupts communal life. How is, what is idolatry? It's an attempt to get a handle on things that are not yours to control. All an idol is, is a technique for controlling things that you are not supposed to be able to control. 
So when we look in the ancient world, we see they have idols for the weather. Well, why? Well, we need certain outcomes. I need my crops to grow. So I'm going to worship this idol and use my worship of this idol to get the weather that I need so that my crops grow, so that I prosper. That's cause and effect. And the idol, then, is the attempt to get control of things that's not actually in your control. And to do that, you have to kill a part of who you are. You have to make a sacrifice to that idol in order to get the outcome that you want. So what happens when Elijah's on, on, the, on the mountain in the showdown with the prophets of Baal? What do they do? You remember? They build the altar, and then what do they do? They cut themselves. And a lot of us relate to God the way they related to Baal. We damage ourselves in hopes that that will be enough to move God to do the good thing. We try to cause God's goodness. And here's how we can tell it. When something goes wrong in our life, what comes up out of us sometimes is, what did I do wrong that made this happen? Or, or, God, I didn't do anything wrong. How could you let this happen? But both of those responses assume that your relationship to God is what Scripture calls our relationship to idols. That God is a resource Something you handle to bring about the outcomes that you want. You know something that you want. You're finding a way to leverage God to get it. And he just isn't going to play that game because it will destroy you and destroy the people around you. So what does Jesus say? Invite the blind, the lame, the poor, the wretched of the earth because they cannot repay you. They don't have any way of affecting the outcome you want. And precisely when you can do nothing and nobody else can do anything for you, the God who creates from nothing can act. Because God does not cause things, God creates. God's not the first cause among many causes. God is the creator of all things. I can cause things. You cause things. God creates. God calls those things that are not into being. God says, let there be light, and there is light. I turn the light on. God calls light into being. God makes things to be what they are. And what we need to recognize is that the relationship to an idol is about trying to manipulate outcomes. The relationship to God is recognizing that He determines what's real. And nothing can separate us from Him because He's Creator. He can make a way where there is no way because He is the one who determines what a way is. And when I'm trying to make a way, I have to manipulate. I have to put my hands on things. I have to try to get handles. I have to try to say the right word at the right time. I have to put myself in the right position. And when you live always trying to handle what's happening in your life, you are expecting to get the, a certain kind of outcome. But what the life of faith is, is recognizing I'm not supposed to handle all of that. I'm not supposed to control the outcomes. I'm in relation to a God who calls all things into being from nothing. The God who raises the dead. And when you recognize that, the anxiety dissipates. And Pastor Bill mentioned this in the prayer for school. Like We've, for generations now, We've been wringing our hands about taking prayer out of schools. And I'm not saying that that's inconsequential. That's beside the point. 
if there is something we don't like that's happening in the world at large, again, I'll just stick with this example, taking prayer out of schools. If we think of that as an effect we don't like, and we think in terms of cause and effect, what are we going to do? Look for any handles we can get to change that outcome. But what idols always require of you, they'll give you what you want, but you have to cut yourself to get it. You have to destroy your humanity, the image of God in yourself, to get what that idol promises you. And this is what our enemy does. He knows what we want. This is the outcome that you want. I'll give it to you if. What happens when Jesus is in the wilderness with Satan? What does he say? You're hungry? Do this. If you are, turn stones to bread. You see all these kingdoms? I'll give it to you. If. This is what idols do. This is what evil spirits do. They see some good outcome you want, promise to give it to you, at the cost of living in ways that are false to Jesus. That destroy the image of God in you. You still with me? So what Jesus says is you've got to learn to trust the God who creates from nothing. Rather than trying to control what's going to happen in our schools or anywhere else, what happens when we live in those spaces open to the God who makes things to be? Rather than trying to manipulate the school board or get the right politician in the right position so that that politician can make the right law so that I get what I want in school, I can be present there in that community in ways in which the Holy Spirit of God overflows me and alters what's real there. Now, this doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in politics. Sure, of course we should be. But we have to be involved in ways that are true to Jesus. What we cannot do is say, Jesus, I will follow you up until there's some outcome that I want so badly, I'm willing to turn my back on you to try to make this happen. All right, we're going to go to Hebrews now. I'm almost done. We're just setting the table, as we say. Hebrews 13. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them, those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. Let marriage be be held in honor by all, and let the marriage bed be kept undefiled, for God will judge fornicators and adulterers. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can say with confidence, and everybody read it with me, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? What can anyone do to me? What can anyone do to me? Well, all kinds of things. They can lie about you. They can betray you. They can abuse you. They can forsake you. But it won't change a single thing about what matters in your life. No matter what anyone does, whether we're talking about society-wide or we're talking about family, 
we're talking about husband, wife, or parent, child, or friend to friend, there is no wrong anyone can do to you that will determine who you are. Now, the way people mistreat us matters. It affects us, but it doesn't determine us. You know, there's this a cliche, people have been saying it for years, you know, I, I look back on my life, but I have no regrets because that's what got me here. No, 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 no. God got you here. You are not the sum total of things that have happened to you. You are who the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God is making you to be. You are you because God is God, not because of what you've lived. Your life is in His hands. Your life is clay that He's molding. You are not the sum total, the outcome of what you've experienced. You are who His Spirit is breathing you to be, brooding over you to be. And what this means then is that I don't have to look at what is happening, what's possible to happen to know who I will be. You cannot keep God from being God to me. Now, if you mistreat me, God has to come to me as a healer, but he will come to me as a healer. There's nothing you can do that will separate me or nothing I can do to you that will separate you from the love of God. Now, if we really believed that, we wouldn't have to pick up weapons against each other. We wouldn't have to look for idols to control outcomes. We wouldn't be driven by anxiety. We would be able to be present to the God who is capable. Nothing is impossible for God. I mean, we sang it this morning, right? God does the impossible. Well, if I really believe that, then why am I willing to sacrifice my humanity and yours to get an outcome I think is necessary? Right? If God can do that, right? So he says, let mutual love continue. You guys, we've so undersold what God wants for us. What God wants for us is perfect mutuality. Not only between us, but between us and Him. What does Paul say that we are in Christ? We're a new creation. We're joint heirs. Right? We are seated with Him in heavenly places. Where, where is He seated? On the throne of God. Where are we in Christ? Everything that is His is ours. We're not just heirs. We're joint heirs. We're not slaves. We're friends. We're His body. We're His bride. God means to make us equals to engage in perfect mutuality with Him and with each other. And notice the text says, let mutual love continue. It's something that's already present because the Trinity is alive in you. Mutual love is already in you. You've been baptized in it. But you won't let it be mutual as long as you are grasping to control outcomes. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For some have entertained angels without knowing it. He's referencing the story of Abraham. You remember Abraham is in the tent, it's the heat of the day, he looks up and sees three strangers and he rushes out to them to care for them, not knowing that not only are those angels, that's the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus present to him. But what's in Abraham is an openness to the stranger, a recognition that I've been in this wilderness, I know what it's like to be in the heat of the day and not have food and not have shelter, I'm not going to let these three strangers pass me by. But so many of us, sit in our tents and see three enemies. We see three people who've come to steal our sheep or take our children. 
We see people who've come to take away our rights or upset the order of things. What Abraham sees are three people in need. Abraham is aware. He's not judgmental. But he's aware, and so he rushes out to them. And what the text is saying, you need to live with that kind of hospitality. Mutual love will show itself in that kind of hospitality. And remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them. As though you were in prison with them. With those who are being tortured as though you yourselves were being tortured. And again, another mark that we've lost the way of Jesus is that we celebrate our privileges. Privileges is about something I have that you can't have. We gate our communities to keep you out. You gate your community to keep me out. Privileges are about having something others can't have. Blessing is about sharing with others everything that you do and you have received from God. Blessing is infinite. Privileged life is always scarce. What makes it privileged is that only a few people get it. Not everybody can live in those houses. Not everybody can work those jobs. Not everybody can have those positions. But blessing is for everyone. And what we're called to is live a blessed and blessing life, not a privileged life. And if we have a position of privilege, what should come out of us is blessing, not more privilege. And so what's happening, there's nothing wrong with privilege as long as you live it in a blessing way. But you can't trust to that privilege. You can't trust to that fortune. And so he says we have to live in such a way that we are identified with those who are being tortured and those who are in prison. A privileged life forgets about those who are suffering. A privileged life looks at those who are suffering and says, thank God, that's not me. How many of you have heard this before in your life? But for the grace of God, there go I. That is blasphemous. That is you. You realize to say, but for the grace of God, there go I, is to say, I'm privileged. What happens to that person is your responsibility. What you do to the least of these, you do to me. When that person walks by you, the wino on the street, and your thought is, thank God that's not me, that's not Jesus talking in you. When you see that person and you realize, that's Jesus right there. That is the Spirit alive in you. That's the difference between blessing and privilege. Privilege sees others and judges the difference. Blessing sees others and shares the life of God. And if we live that life, what we bring about is mutuality. We bring about the life of the Trinity in the midst of the world. And that mutuality spreads in every direction. It flows like the river that's inside of us. Two minutes. If you live like that, you can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? But to do that, you have to keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Everybody knows the passage. Go ahead and stand with me if you would, because I want to pray for you. Be content with what you have. Everybody knows the passage. The love of money is 
the root of all evil. And man, a lot of us have spent a lot of time trying to find a way to make sure that doesn't mean what it says. <laughs> but what I want you to think about for just a moment is what is the root of the love of money? If the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, what is the root of the love of money? And what I want to suggest to you is it's fear of what you cannot control. That the root of everything wrong in our world, everything wrong in our world, is human beings afraid of what they can't control. And out of that fear of what they cannot control, they make decisions that they know are bad, but they think are necessary to bring about an outcome they're willing to sacrifice for. At the end of this passage, we're told that there are sacrifices which are pleasing to God, the fruit of our lips, and to share what we have with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. And you know what that does? It throws us back to the very first story, the very first account, Cain and Abel. What happens with Cain and Abel? They offer sacrifices. What's stunning about that story, and you can go ahead, John, when you're ready. What's stunning about that story is that Cain offers the sacrifice first, not Abel. Why was Cain offering a sacrifice? We, we all remember he offered fruit, he offered grain, the fruit of the ground. Why? What does he want? There's something in us. Call it sin, call it fallenness, call it brokenness. There's something in us that is afraid of what's to come. We're afraid of what we can't control. All of that is symbolized in what we, we call the future. We're afraid of what we can't control. And that, that is in us, that sin in us that the enemy preys on, starts to think, if I could just make a sacrifice, if I could just get God's attention with a sacrifice, maybe I would get control. Maybe if I just give this money or show up at this event or have perfect attendance for the year or volunteer in the in the children's department or maybe if I just break these sins out of my life maybe if if I just worship with more intensity maybe if I could just stop being the person that I am start being the person I want to be if I could just figure out a way to get control of this then I could dictate the outcomes that I want and that is what leads to the love of money and that's what leads to all kinds of evil. Because you're looking for handles. But we're not meant to control. We're meant to be content. At the end of the day, Psalm 1 tells us there are two kinds of lives. There are people who are grasping for control. And there are people who are content to open their hands. And if we grasp for control, we will be Fleeing from anxiety to anxiety, from fear to fear, from anger to anger, from violence to violence. We will destroy the mutual love that is already present. What destroys our lives? People who grasp for things that are not theirs to grasp. Think about this. 
What Abel does is offer a sacrifice that is accepted, remember? And Cain is infuriated and kills him. The book of Hebrews, and I wish we had time to do this, we'll do it some other time, is an argument about the ways in which Jesus' sacrifice is different from both Cain and Abel's. Because there's something wrong with Abel's sacrifice. Do you know what it is? He doesn't offer it for Cain. He offers it for himself. And there are so, 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 so many people who identify themselves as Christians who are offering sacrifices for themselves. And all that does is provoke violence. Because even though Cain's sacrifice is not accepted, and Abel's sacrifice is, neither one of them have a lineage. There's no future for either of them because they're not living in mutual love. Cain is offering his sacrifice to get the outcome he wants, and Abel is offering his sacrifice to get the outcome he wants. And that will kill the life of God that's at work in us. And if you'll let me say it this this strongly, we've been producing churches filled with Abel's for generations. People who are proud that they're not Cain's, People who are offering sacrifices that have nothing to do with anything but trying to control the outcome of their own future. And nothing could be further from the Spirit of Jesus. Because what we're supposed to do is do what we do for the sake of the other. And this is what's at the heart of Jesus' parable. What does he say? Sit in the lowest place so that you can be, some, it can be said to you, friend, come up here. But when you realize that Jesus is the one who's saying it, where is he calling you to? The cross. When you put yourself where you should be, Jesus will notice, and he will call you to bear your cross with him. So that when you are wounded, what flows out of you is the life of God. When Jesus dies, what's coming out of his mouth? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus' life is nothing but a sacrifice offered for you and for me and not for himself. Not my will, but your will be done. The heart of the gospel that has claimed you and me is that I love God for your sake God has called me here because he loves you. And whatever God is doing in my life is for you and for those I've not yet met and those I'll run into in the coming days. God is concerned for them. And when my heart turns to that, I can be content because the content that is in me is already enough. When you're grasping for control, it's because you think you don't have enough yet. 
If I just had one more revelation, if I just had one more friend, if I just had one more promotion, if I just had one more zero on my check, all of that is grasping for what is not already in you. Contentment is recognizing that all the content you need is already on the inside of you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. You have everything you need right now. Everything you need to be the blessing God has called you to be, you have right now. You have every dollar you need. You have every friend you need. You have every gift you need. You have every experience you need. You don't need one more drop of anything to be who you're called to be. And when you settle into that and realize that the content on the inside of you right now, today, right here, is enough, for mutuality to flow, you can be at peace. God, thank you that you are enough. You are enough. You are enough. And God, we don't need one more thing. Whatever good things come, we'll rejoice with them. We know how to abound as well as how to be abased. But it's not the abounding or the abasing that matters. What matters is we know that you can do all things and therefore we can do all things in you. We are content. God, these men, these women in this room right now, they have everything they need right now, right here, to be everything they're called to be. Salem doesn't need one more family, doesn't need a bigger offering, doesn't need a greater anointing or a revival to come. Salem has everything Salem needs right now to be your source of life in this community. And God, for every one of my brothers and sisters here, Whatever they're experiencing, I want good things for them. I want them to get invited to the party. I want them to be as privileged as they can be. But God, more than any of that, I want them to be blessed and a blessing. I want your life to flow out of them. I want the flood of your goodness to wash the anxiety and the fear away. God, we are all of us so, so, so afraid. Afraid that we won't be able to be who we're supposed to be, to do what we're supposed to do. Afraid that we've already done damage to those that we love that we can't undo. But God, you are the God who creates. You don't cause, you create. And there is nothing we've done or left undone. There's nothing we have yet to do or may not be able to do that can keep us from being the people you've called us to be. Nothing, nothing, no failure can block the flow of your spirit. You'll just take that failure up and redeem it. God, teach us contentment. Father Bill, come take care of me. Get me out of the way. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, Check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.